1: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
3: Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end.
2: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe
0: McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time to go into the vault for an older episode of the show. This one originally aired on August 6th, 2019, and it was called Social Media is a
2: Bummer. This is where we talked about uh, Jaron Lanier's book, which was highly critical of social media. That's right. Ten arguments for deleting your social media accounts right now. I think it's some excellent food for thought uh, as we continue through 2020.
1: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
2: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back to a subject that may be familiar to you if you've been listening to the show for a bit. It's the next battle in the war against the machines.
2: That's right. Uh, you know, it, as we've already discussed on the show and I think it's obvious to most of our listeners, the wonders of interconnectedness that the web have, uh, have, have given us have also uh, unleashed some less than satisfying realities. You know, we, we worry about smartphone addiction and uh, the, the degree to which these, these devices and the many apps they have on them have been engineered to game our attention. And then of late, there's been growing attention given to the role social media has in uh, in uh, you know playing into uh, you know corporate and state manipulation, endangering democracy, our personal freedom, and our happiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've we've recorded uh, a few different notable episodes on these topics,
0: right? So I know you and Christian a while back did an episode. Uh, now this was years ago. Now, so the, yeah. the research has come a long way since then, I think. But you did an episode on what the measurable psychological effects of social media were, correct? Yes. Uh, and and there's still, I think this is still a developing field. Like, I notice a lot of conflicting findings when I read right. up on this. Like, is social media making us more lonely, more depressed, whatever? It seems like the answer to that question is it's complicated.
2: Right. And and I think we'll discuss a little bit of this later on, too, that, you know, it also depends on how you're using social media, what your role is, or using social media as part of your job, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, then we also, you and I, Robert, did a couple of episodes within the past
0: couple of years uh, called the Great Eyeball Wars mm-hmm. that were primarily about the attention economy, about the fact that our, our devices and specifically, especially like social media platforms on those devices, but other platforms also are, uh, because they make their money by getting you to use them and pay attention through, you know, advertiser dollars, like you are the product on these right. platforms, you're not the customer, uh, and your attention is what is being sold to the advertisers, they're addicting us, and they're addicting us on purpose, pretty much.
2: Right, like one of the, I think the handiest metaphors is, is that a social media ad App on your smartphone turns your smartphone into a tiny slot machine yes but it's but while a vegas slot machine is 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 programmed to steal all of your money Mm. uh this slot machine this tiny slot machine is programmed to steal all of your time
0: your time and your attention Mm -hmm. yeah it wants you using it as much as possible and the the numbers on this are kind of freaky like when when you actually measure how much time people spend on their smartphones uh, especially looking at apps like Facebook or, you know, other social media apps, they don't usually like what they find out when those numbers come in.
2: Right. And certainly we do have tools on a lot of our smartphones now to track uh, our screen time and to to keep tabs on and even set up little barriers to uh, excessive use. Mm-hmm. But as far as I, I know, like most of that stuff is still very voluntary. And then we're not dealing necessarily with the default settings on a phone. Right. Um, or, or certainly, when you get a new phone, you gen- tend to bring over your your sort of legacy settings from the former phone. So, uh-huh. um, you know, I, th- I think there's a there's a huge argument to be made that uh, the, that these companies are not really uh, you know going in headfirst in in the the battle to reduce your screen time, right. Uh, and then also we did a more recent episode called The Doppelganger Network where we talked
0: about uh, – the jumping off point for that was an article that uh, we read by uh, Robert Sapolsky, the neuroendocrinologist, I think at Stanford. And he uh, and he made a comparison between the effects of social media use and, and digital media more generally and uh, the, the psychological conditions like Capcraw delusion that cause this rift between – recognition and familiarity in the brain so it creates a kind of uh, a kind of strange alienated world where, where where normally you'd pair these experiences of cognitive recognition you know knowing that you recognize something you see and the feeling of familiarity with it but that is kind of torn asunder by the dynamics of social media
2: yeah and and so i i don't think you know the, the idea this argument that oh the, the so the social media uh, is potentially dangerous that it's that it has uh, you know ill effects. This is probably not new. I think everyone's heard somebody argue it to to some extent, and we've even seen people make fun of the argument. Uh, like mm. for instance, one image that that frequently makes the round is uh, uh, is an old um, old timey photograph of like a subway car or a train full of individuals, everybody reading a newspaper, everybody's face hidden in a newspaper, uh-huh. and then using this to make fun of the argument that uh, you know oh everybody's just plugged into their phones and they're not uh, connecting with each other. Right. As if to say, well, this is exactly the same thing. But it's not. Uh, I think it's, it's definitely worth driving home that the type of uh, uh, psychological <laughs> involvement that's going on with a, a social media platform on a mobile device is entirely different than what you would find uh, by just sticking your head into a book or a newspaper. A book or a newspaper is not a real-time feedback device. Right.
0: Yeah, I mean I think one thing that 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 kind of like poking fun at this argument does reveal is that you can take the argument too far and be kind of totalizing about it because it's important to recognize that the reason people use these services are because they do provide something that people want. You know, mm-hmm. people uh, through social media are able to keep up with friendships that might have fallen by the wayside, otherwise, you know, maybe long distance friendships. Uh, you know these 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 platforms and these devices do enable all kinds of things in people's lives that are valuable
2: and good. Right, and yeah, and you can certainly go overboard in kind of a luddite uh, response to it, and say, "Well, the internet is bad, or technology is bad." Uh, and I, I feel like everybody's going to have varying opinions. Like, uh, to one extreme, you may be convinced that social media is um, you, know, you know is leaning more and more toward the self digestion of human civilization, or you <laughs> or you may see nothing wrong with social media at all. You may say, "Look, Robert and Joe, I you know I use my Instagram, I use my Facebook, I keep with, up with a few friends, uh, you know, a few celebrities." Or a few bands or what have you, I get the news through it and that's it. And it doesn't, uh, you know, you know, greatly improve or uh, harm my uh, psychic experience of reality.
0: Yeah. And if that and if that's what you believe, our goal is not to convince you that, no, you don't understand. It's actually ruining your life. I mean, you may very well have a perfectly healthy, limited relationship with social media, and you you may be one of the people who's getting more out of it than it's getting out of you. But for a lot of people, I think we do want to make the case that that is not what's going on.
2: Right. I would say that most of us, even if you you can say, uh, you know, honestly, that you have a healthy relationship with social media. You can probably not say the same for everyone in your circle. Right. There there there's probably somebody or several people that uh, the display signs of uh, unhealthy usage. So in this episode, you know, we're going to we're going to look at uh, at some arguments against social media. Specifically, we're going to be discussing uh, an author by the name of Jaron Lanier and his 2018 book, 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. It's a great title. It gets right to the point. It does. It, and it is a, a fabulous uh, little book that uh, Joe and I both, both read for this episode. It's, um, it's short. It's something on the order of, what, uh, 146 pages long?
0: It's extremely accessible. Like He did not make this a you know a high high-level computer science intellectual argument. It is written so that I think pretty much anybody could understand it. It's very accessible. It's very ground level. And I I think it makes a pretty compelling case that at least – well, his argument is that social media in the business model that exists today is doing more harm than good. And our best way of fighting that harm
2: is – to have everybody get off of these platforms right because this will force the uh, the, the, the companies involved uh, to actually implement changes right and
0: and so his his argument is not one against technology, and it 's not even necessarily against one, uh, one against um a certain form of social media. It's against a particular business model that powers social media. And that business model, I think, is is what he ends up calling the bummer business model. It's a business model that is paid for by behavioral modification.
2: Yes, bummer. B-U-M-M-E-R, which uh, Lanier uh, says stands for behaviors of users modified and made into an empire for rent.
0: (laughs) It's clever having an acronym because right. it sticks with you,
2: and uh, and yeah, it's clever and it's a little bit funny, and and that can be said for the entire book, despite it being a, a fairly serious topic with some potentially serious ramifications for uh, humanity at large and for individual um, you know self worth. Uh, it is a humorous read at times, and mm-hmm. it is it is fun to read. So I, I can't recommend it highly enough. There's a book you can read on the train in the plane, uh, on a toilet. Uh, you know, <laughs> just, it just makes for a great but important casual read. Yeah. And we, we've talked about maybe getting him on the podcast
0: sometime soon, and that would be great to have a conversation with him. But today we just wanted to talk about maybe a couple of the arguments that he brings up in the book and, and our thoughts about them.
2: Yeah. We're not going to attempt to regurgitate uh, the entire book because the book uh, is is already, it speaks a, itself, a, yeah, yeah. It already speaks for itself. So l- we'll start, though, by just talking about uh, Jaron Lanier himself. Mm-hmm. You might be familiar with him already, perhaps. Perhaps you're not perhaps you've just read his name and thought it was pronounced uh jaron lanier uh, which is how i've been pronouncing it in my mind that's how while. i've said it on the show a lot yeah, yeah. But uh, anyway, he is a scientist, a musician, and a writer. He is a major figure in the, uh, the realm of virtual reality, having founded the VR company VPL Research in the 1980s. And while he didn't coin the term virtual reality, this is uh, generally attributed to French playwright uh, Antonin Artaud in 1938, uh, he did popularize it. Uh, he helped create the first commercial VR products and introduced avatars, multi-person virtual world experiences and prototypes of major VR applications such as surgical simulation he was involved in the creation of the Nintendo power glove really yeah oh, now you're playing with power yeah which uh, you know which I have to say the power glove I never had one as a kid but oh. I, I saw people with them I knew people who had them and it it was this this instrument of wonder mm-hmm. uh, I don't think it was all that practical no. uh, as a gaming <laughs> device but it, I think it inspired a lot of people and I also love seeing especially 1990s science fiction Fiction, where they have reused a power glove as part of like a cybernetic, uh, you know, outfit for somebody. Uh, uh, anyway, he uh, he was also involved in the uh, uh, in with the uh, creation of the headset apparently for the 1992 film The Lawnmower Man. So you're really bringing out the hits here. Yeah, and I think
0: this is probably not the stuff that usually
2: gets highlighted about his career. <laughs> well, but it's this, you know, some of the stuff that I think some of our listeners might be uh, familiar with. Exactly. I, I should point out that he's not credited on Lawnmower Man, but he does uh, get a thanks on the the. The far superior sci-fi work minority report oh okay uh he but uh more to the point though he's an author of um of several books uh such as 2006 uh, information is an alienated experience you are not a gadget a manifesto from 2010 who owns the future from 2013 and dawn of the new everything from 2017
0: now i tend to think of him kind of as a Technology philosopher and and I yes. really like a lot of his approach because it's got a healthy skepticism about uh, overhyping technology and what it can do and at the same time he's not anti technology he's clearly somebody who loves digital technology loves computers and, you know he's worked with them his whole career and so he doesn't end up saying throw your smartphone in the fire flush it down the toilet smash it with a hammer it's not an anti-technology message. He actually has a very specifically tailored message uh, trying to identify exactly what it is about the social media platforms specifically as they exist today that's causing problems for us and
2: for our society and how could they be changed? Yeah, ultimately, he is uh, an optimist. Like, he's he's presenting an optimistic view of the future, like, certainly highlighting problems but discussing how we can address them, Mm -hmm. Uh, which I love. I I feel like I've spent too much... Much of my life um, you know looking at more pessimistic views of reality and dystopian views of reality and i 've gotten to the point where those just don 't serve me anymore so mm-hmm. I, I far prefer reading uh, an author like uh, like uh, Jerry Lanier. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the book in question, I, I have to talk about the, the cover uh, of it because the cover is is very simple, you know, just a uh, black and red text on a white background and a silhouette of a cat walking off the cover of the book. And the cat is a central metaphor in the book. Right. Because as he points out, you know, as much as we love dogs. I love dogs. You, you do love dogs. And I love dogs, too, just I don't uh, own one. But uh, as much as we love dogs, we domesticated the dog. The cat, arguably, domesticated itself. Hmm. Uh, you know, it interacts in our lives more on its terms. Uh, you you were at great pains to attempt to train the cat, uh, as anyone who's ever certainly uh, you know tried to to uh, you know shoot a film about cats can attest to. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, Lanier argues that social media is essentially turning us into well-trained dogs, but we should really strive to be cats, able to dictate our involvement in the relationship at hand, to scratch the hand that feeds us if we so wish to sleep wherever we choose, refuse food and walk on all the furniture. Uh, <laughs> ultimately we should, we should want to be cats. We don't want to be social media's dog. Yeah. And also, I mean, while he's advising
0: people to quit social media, He's making an argument and he's not it's not a totalizing argument. I mean, he realizes mm-hmm. that different people are in different cir- circumstances uh, that it's it's not a choice that will work for everybody.
2: Right. Like he's very clear on the on the, the fact that quitting social media is is a privilege yeah. and not everybody's able to do it. A lot of people uh, you know, own a business or 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 part of their job entails them using social media. I know some people like that. Yeah, and they, they're just they're trapped in they're trapped in it. You know, like you, you just can't walk away from it. Or you might be shackled to it more socially. Like, well, if I stop using uh, you know, Facebook, how am I going connect, to connect, connect with my friends who all live in another city and I just moved to a place where I don't know anybody. Um, you know, th- there are all these arguments to be made. And so he's not, he's not, you know, drawing this firm line in the sand and saying, you know, the winners over here, losers over there, uh, or anything of the, of the sort. And he's certainly not arguing that, you know, we should, we should all go and make a big dramatic to do about quitting social media either, <laughs> because I think, I think we all see that occasionally on our feet too. There's, oh,
0: that's the most embarrassing thing when you see somebody post a lot about how they're quitting and Mm -hmm. then they quit for a week and then they're back.
2: Yeah yeah Ooh. yeah and, and in fact i actually i shared i shared something about this book on a, on my private uh, social media feed and, in, and immediately like somebody was like calling me out for having posted about quitting social media on social media uh, but of course i, I think well, what's wrong with that i mean, I mean where are we going to talk about leaving social media but social media yeah uh to a certain extent um and, and also uh, well i mean this episode where we're discussing his arguments
0: yeah uh, again you know we We're not necessarily saying everybody's got to get off social media, but I do think these are some interesting arguments very worth considering. Right. Um, we're discussing these on an episode that will be promoted on social media because that is part of the distribution business model of this podcast. Exactly. It's like, this is how, you know, one way that we reach listeners. And if we don't do this, it won't reach as many listeners. So I don't know. how, How do you, how do you balance that? It's like, are you actually doing better if you say, well, let's not post the episode
2: on social media so fewer people will hear it. Yeah. Thus is the world. Thus have we made it. But, uh, at any rate, uh, Lanier also ultimately uh, says, like, hey, I'm not even saying quit social media forever, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, you know, because ultimately he's, hope, he's hopeful that social media can be corrected, that we can come back to a version of social media that is not harmful f- to us in so many ways. Mm-hmm. And then also he's saying, like, you know, quit for a while and come back. That's the only way you'll, you'll have any kind of like insight on what it's doing to you. Like this will help give you the, um, uh, you know, the vantage point uh, by which to, to understand understand the interaction between your life and these bummer systems.
0: All right, well, maybe we should take a quick break, and then when we come back, we can discuss a couple of the arguments from the book and our thoughts about them.
2: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
4: Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at hypergig for details. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel
0: podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all.
2: All right, we're back. Uh, So again, uh, the book we're discussing is uh, Jaron Lanier's 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. You're probably wondering, what are those 10 arguments? Mm -hmm. We're not going to regurgitate all 10 arguments here. If you want to know what they are, you should pick up a copy of it because, mm-hmm. without even opening the book, all ten are listed on the back, right? Which is which is was handy, you know. You can just you can instantly see what you're in for. We're going to be talking about, I think, basically four of the arguments and uh, and discussing them a bit here for you.
0: Yeah, some in more depth than others. Uh, now, one thing that we should talk about up front because it's sort of a foundational argument that feeds into all the others is this point that, in Lanier's words. Due to social media, you are partially losing your free will. Mm -hmm. Uh, So one of his core arguments, on which many of the others rest, is that social media is at heart a mass program of behavior modification for rent. That is how these companies make money. So if you're Facebook, the way that you make money is that people pay you to have some kind of influence on users of Facebook, and that influence could be a very traditional, normal style of advertising—the kind of thing that you know th- that happens everywhere, and most people aren't bothered by, right? Because it's clear what's happening—you're just seeing an ad for a product that somebody thinks you might want, and you know there's the ad, and you might go buy it. That's you know we're not generally very bothered by that,
2: right? Always reminds me of uh, the moment in Futurama where uh, Fry encounters in the future an advertisement in his dream that's he find, a,
0: little, a little creepier he finds yeah. it
2: intrusive and he says you know we didn't have that and in my time we just had uh advertisements you know all over the place and in the sky and on the billboard <laughs> i mean certainly we do live even without social media we live in an age of you just ubiquitous advertising
0: yeah and you know that is this is one thing that he does sort of attack is the the problem that the web arose on an advertising pay-for model, uh, you know, the, back in the early days of the web, there was this idea that everything needed to be free to access. You couldn't charge people to get stuff on the web, but then how do you pay for producing that stuff? Yep. Somebody's got to make it, you know, the, they've got to get paid somehow. So what happens? Well, you'd pay for it by showing advertising along with the thing, and the
2: advertisers would pay for what you're seeing. Right. And of course, uh, again, coming back to podcasting, we're not blind to the fact that that's essentially what you have with this podcast. Yeah. This podcast is provided to you for free, but you have to put up with advertisements. Right
0: now, I, I don't really mind that from an advertise from a from a podcast point of view, right? Because uh, when I listen to podcasts and when I make a podcast, I generally think the advertising that's happening there is fairly straightforward. It's pretty clear what's going on. Somebody's pitching you a product,
2: right? I know. mean, likewise on television. Of course, television started off with the same model, and he discusses this. You know, mm-hmm. it's like here's the signal here's some programming but here are also some advertisements mm-hmm. but generally speaking without getting into some of the you know the trickier forms of television advertising and product integration and so forth you're you're still dealing with a situation where it's like i'm watching a show okay now i'm watching an ad yeah. now i'm watching the show again
0: right but even when even with other things you know like uh, uh sponsored content and stuff like that i mean i think there's there's a big difference between what's clear and what's sneaky. Yeah. I think generally people tend to be okay with advertising when it's clear what's going on, when you know they're told who's paying for what they're seeing and it's clear what the person who's paying for what they're seeing wants them to do. Usually it's like buy my product or mm-hmm. become a member of my service or something like that. that. That that's the kind of thing that I usually feel fine about, that most people tend to feel fine about. What's going on with social media? Uh, according to, to Lanier's argument, is that there is a much sneakier, more subtle, and perhaps more sinister thing happening, which is that our behavior is being modified in ways that are not clear, that are not uh, that are not obvious to us, ways that we're not aware of, and we oftentimes, in fact, most of the time, don't know who's doing it.
2: Right. And I think we all have those moments using a product like Facebook where something an advertisement will pop up or or perhaps a, a post even made by a friend will pop up, and you'll stop for a second and wonder why was that served to me? Like, yeah, why, why am I seeing this? Yeah, what is what have I done? What sort of interactions on my part or dim, you know uh, demographic information on my part has led to this being put in my face?
0: Uh, but. There's a good chance that it is. It's either serving the uh, like the supply model of Facebook, which is trying to keep you engaged on the platform for as long as possible. Mm-hmm. So that that's one thing. They just want to keep you on there so they can be, modify your behavior more, gather more data about you, show you more ads. Uh, so that's one thing. They might be just showing you it, it to you because. The, their vast collection of data shows that when you see stuff like this, you use Facebook for a longer period of time right. or you log back on more often later in the day. Uh, so that might be one thing. But the other thing might be that you're seeing that thing because somebody has targeted you for some kind of effect. They want to generate some kind of effect. And this could be a like become-my-customer kind of effect or it could be something else. It could be an effect like – We want to make people stay home instead of go out and vote today.
2: Now, at this point, I do want to to drive home as well that one thing that Lanier is very clear on is that he is making no argument that there is like a room at Facebook or Twitter or wherever uh, where like evil operations go on, that there's like a sinister cabal uh, in any of these organizations that are sitting down and saying, what can we do to destroy the human soul or anything like that? Right, there's not a ha committee. Right.
0: There is, instead, uh, there is, well well, I mean, there are decisions being made by people about what types of incentives will be algorithmically optimized. And so, so that is something where, it's not like the humans who operate in these companies don't bear responsibility. Right. They do, but they're not, they're, they're generally not trying to ruin the human race. They're, they're not trying
2: to say, what's the worst thing we can do to our users? Right. That would, that would just be a simplification of something that is a lot more complicated. Yeah. And it's taking place not on the scale of even an in, of an individual or individuals, but taking place on the, the scale of a corporation.
0: What Lanier argues is that bad business incentives which prioritize behavior modification are leading to the creation of algorithms that sort of automatically commit these these behavior modification schemes. And so behavior modification can be linked to traditions in the behaviorist school of psychology, which flourished in the 20th century. We, we've talked on other episodes of the show about like B.F. Skinner and behaviorism. Behaviorism sometimes gets demonized, and there are definitely really good reasons to be historically critical of the the behaviorist trend in the history of psychology but it also wasn't entirely wrong like behaviorism i think could be credited with trying to make psychology a more objective science but it also you know a common criticism is that it sort of treats the human brain like a black box you know conditioning goes in behavior comes out and whatever happens inside just isn't really important But one thing that it did show is that if you treat the the human brain like this kind of like mystery machine Mm -hmm. where you just kind of like put conditioning in and keep calibrating until you get the output behavior you want, you can actually change behavior in an extremely effective way like that. Uh, Like, you know, behavioral conditioning can be very powerful, and Lanier's, uh, Lanier's argument is that modern social media is sort of almost a, a perfect vehicle for refining behavioral conditioning because it can collect extremely minute data about you and lots of it uh, because, of course, it has, you know, the, this connection. To it, like it, it records everything you do and all the stuff you do on social media. There's actually a lot of things you do on social media that they can learn a lot about from your brain states to where you are through location tagging to what you spend money on, you mm-hmm know your linked accounts to the words you use reflecting your moods like they can they know a lot about you and about how what they show you affects what you do
2: right like, you know I, I would be loath perhaps to say that they know us better than we know ourselves but they're but I feel like they often these platforms often know us better than we are perhaps prepared to admit to ourselves
0: yeah well they know things about you that are different from the way you think about yourself yes. They know about you from a behavioral conditioning standpoint where they can track in a really minute way what conditioning goes in and what behavior comes out. We tend not to think of ourselves that way. We tend to think of ourselves from the inside out. We think about our own mind states. You know, We tell a narrative about our behaviors in which everything is rationalized to make sense. So it's often – we feel kind of demeaned when it's suggested that we are – vulnerable to behavioral conditioning. It's like, mm-hmm. no, 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 I'm not, you know, it's like how people think advertising doesn't work on them. Right. You know, like, no, I'm not more likely to buy a product because I saw a commercial for it, but you know, you probably are. I mean, you, you, we just tend to think we're more mentally ind-
2: independent of uh, the effects of stimuli than we actually are. Or we will will criticize it and say it doesn't affect us on one platform, and then on another, we'll celebrate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, without naming any names, you know, one might use a particularly uh, uh, popular uh, you know, music streaming service, mm-hmm. and you might go, wow, I really love the algorithm on this thing. It really knows what I'm into. It yes. gets me. It keeps giving me musical suggestions that are Totally on point. Yeah, uh, and the, you need to, you have to stop sometimes. It's like, well, I guess that's a good thing, but is it really? Yeah. Uh, so
0: social media platforms—they can gather all this data about you, but also they have extreme psychological power over you. I mean, especially you know, the big one to think about is Facebook. Uh, just like. It's this almost perfect machine for maximizing potential in behavior modification. It can make you feel and think what it wants with astonishing effectiveness just by showing you certain things that it has figured out that when it shows these things to people like you, you tend to react by behaving a certain way. Mm-hmm and then of course it can just keep calibrating those uh, those efforts more finely and finally uh, finally with the extremely high quality feedback based on the way it tracks your behavior in all the ways we mentioned earlier so this this is his basic argument and you can see that companies like facebook are interested in in always getting tighter and tighter control of of the data and feedback about you in these sorts of ways i was just reading a story the other day uh, in the mit tech review about Facebook being involved in funding research on a wearable headband that could supposedly read your thoughts. Now, I don't think we should get overly alarmed about like this one particular news story, because Mm -hmm. this kind of technology is probably very crude at this point. You know, it it doesn't tell you a lot today. Yeah, we're not going
2: to go from like zero to black mirror in a year on this particular front.
0: Right. But I do think the fact that Facebook is funding this kind of research should tell us something. They want to get deeper. They want to go further. They want to get closer and closer to your brain to know exactly how you're reacting to things in real time all the time. They want, they want sort of like infinitely precise and finely calibrated data about you. And why would they want that? It's because it gives them better control over what you do, and that control can be rented out to sponsors. And again, and those sponsors could be fairly straightforward. They could be somebody trying to get you to buy their brand of shoes or it could be a government trying to control what you do on a certain day or, uh, or control how you feel
2: about a political movement absolutely and uh, and uh, certainly the, the the involvement of of uh, of other states or operatives acting on the part of uh, on the behalf of other states has has certainly been in the news a, a great deal recently
0: well yeah it's very strange that like that i don't know if people would have predicted 10 years ago maybe they did and i, I wasn't aware of it that social media would start to become a major um statecraft and national security
2: concern yeah yeah, I mean, well I think we were all probably in the you know, in the, in the same boat. You know, for the most part, when social media started up, it just seemed like a thing that was a fun way to connect with a few other people that you knew and maybe meet some new people. It's cool. Yeah. And it was, you know, for the most part, you know, it was just uh, you and friends and potential new friends on there and your parents weren't on it yet. Uh, Major politicians were not on it yet. Um, Major governments were seemingly not involved yet.
0: Uh, Well, I mean, it's the the, I don't want to be overly (laughs) I don't want to demonize it too much, but I mean it's kind of the addiction model, right? It's mm-hmm. like you know your first your first dose of this drug is free, maybe your first free uh, several doses, you get hooked, and then uh, what Lanier talks about a big issue going on with these companies is that there is this problem of network effects, right? Mm-hmm. Network effects are uh, the 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 thing that happens in digital media businesses where people tend to get locked into a service. And once people are locked into a service, it's very hard for there to be an effective competitor and get people to move over there. People are already on Facebook. If you tried to start a, a better Facebook today, and people have tried to start like nonprofit Facebooks, Nobody
2: goes over there. Right. I've joined those before and it lasts like an afternoon.
0: Yeah. You're, you're already, people are on Facebook because that's where their friends are and that's where all, that's where everything's happening. It's network effects that keep people locked in once they're already there. And once everybody's there, you can kind of like lock the doors and then start doing whatever you want inside.
2: Yeah. And you can check out anytime you like, right? But you can never leave. Yep. (laughs) All right, so we're skipping, skipping around a bit, but another argument, uh, basically the fifth argument that uh, Lanier makes is that social media is making what you say meaningless. Yeah. And the core argument here comes down to context. Now, entering into this argument... Uh, I personally thought about the rather simple example that I'm sure many of you are thinking of right now, an, an ambiguous text message or email that is taken out of context because there are limitations to what we can typically convey in these, you know, limited generally short form communication formats, uh, you know, an emoji can only do so much to provide context to what you're saying.
0: You ever notice how if you listen to a friend of yours talk about something, it sounds normal and fine. Mm-hmm. but if you listen Listen to a snippet of a stranger's conversation. They sound like a complete moron and <laughs> it's like embarrassing. Or or
2: at, at best like a, a cryptic alien mm-hmm. where you're just like, what, 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 what was that? I'll never know.
0: But do you know, I mean, and it's not like strangers happen to be like there's something wrong with people you don't know as opposed to people you do know. Mm-hmm. It's that when you know somebody, you have context based in their personality and your relationship with them what they're saying makes sense to you right because you know them and you know how they generally think about things and all that uh, if you were if you didn't know this person you just happened to overhear them as you know you walk by on the sidewalk and they were saying the same thing that would normally that would sound normal to you as part of a conversation you might think like wow what the what a freak
2: I know I people probably think the same thing about me all the time oh
0: I'm sure people think that about me <laughs> I mean I, I think about this all the time like I'll be out somewhere having a conversation about Highlander 2, The Quickening, and Mm -hmm. I'm like, what do I sound like? What kind (laughs) of... What kind of idiot do I sound like to somebody (laughs) who doesn't know me? I mean, I probably, maybe I sound that bad to people who do know me, but.
2: (laughs) No. All right. So, but anyway, coming back to Lanier here, he's getting, some of this applies to his case, but basically he's saying that, yeah, with context or the lack of context, you know, it comes down to the lack of individual control over context on social media. Mm -hmm. And he points to two extreme examples of this online to sort of, uh, uh, you know, better illustrate what's happening uh, elsewhere so like the two extreme cases would be when um when you have legit ads popping up on say terrorist recruitment videos on youtube which was yeah. which was a problem uh, at least early on is that you would have a legitimate advertiser and ultimately an Ill- illegitimate content or an illegitimate user mm-hmm. and those would be matched together in the context it would would be, you know, accidental and terrible.
0: Yeah. Platforms are juxtaposing content without understanding what that content is. And it very often doesn't reflect well on any of the content or certainly on some of it.
2: Right. And then the other example he brought up were uh, when you have uh, images uh, of say, uh, women and girls whose, uh, whose images are are sexualized or incorporated into violent media without their consent. Yeah. Again, that's like a, 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 that's horrible. And it is uh, an extreme example, but, Uh, He argues that these extreme cases are possible because social media in general robs us of control over context. When we express ourselves online, we have no idea how that expression will be presented specifically to anybody else.
0: How often is there some public controversy about like a tweet where mm-hmm. you know somebody is like somebody's like hey i found a tweet by ex celebrity you know where they said something that looks really bad and then that person defends themselves by saying but you took it out of context right and what what you really feel about this of course is going to very highly case by case, because maybe the context changes the meaning of it and maybe it doesn't. Right. But when it's
2: just presented as a snippet, like you that individual know. doesn't have control of the context, maybe you have control of the context, but but they don't. It's similar when, and you, we certainly see this uh, in our political cycles as well, you know, something that a, a candidate said or wrote uh, 10 years ago uh, is, is, you know, 20 years ago, what have you, uh, is taken out as a snippet and presented mm-hmm. uh, often without... Comp- either without context or without, like, complete context as to what they were talking about.
0: Right. Uh, and, you know, in, in some cases, I mean, anytime you're quoting somebody, you are you are literally taking them out of context. Right. But, like, uh, th- there are ways that being taken out of context can be pernicious. And then there—I mean, there are totally normal ways to do it, too. But, but
2: then again, is—, is when, when something is taken out of context it's, there's kind of implied by that statement that context is usually in place yeah. and, and it's like saying who, who left the, this toy on the, the, the kitchen floor, uh-huh. let's put it back where it goes. Right. You don't want to live in a reality where the toys are always on the kitchen floor right. in which context is always out of place. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's ultimately what he's getting at with social media. I'm, g- I'm going to read just a quote, uh, from his writings here. Quote, we have given up our connection to context. Social media mashes up meaning. Whatever you say will be contextualized and given meaning by the way algorithms and crowds of fake people uh, who are actually algorithms match it up with what other people say. And he continues, speaking through social media isn't really speaking at all. Context is applied to what you say after you say it for someone else's purposes and profit. So essentially, we have surrendered context to the bummer platform he 's saying, uh, rendering communication quote petty, shallow, and predictable, and as such, only the extreme voices the the worst of us, the loudest, the you know the most acidic voices in our culture are going to be the ones that rise up
0: Oh, yeah, I mean, this is a whole other point he makes that I guess we 're not going into in depth, but mm-hmm. I mean, he argues that these platforms necessarily promote the worst voices because the worst voices tend to drive engagement. Right. And the platforms want to drive engagement. What gets people using the platforms more keeps people glued to Twitter, glued to Facebook. It's like whatever gins
2: up the most negative emotion. Right. And uh, one quick word on engagement, one thing that he, he hammers home a number of times in the book is that when you hear the word engagement used in a social media context, what we're talking about is manipulation. So uh, try to think about that next time if you're attending a meeting or reading an article, uh, sort of like especially a pro-social media argument, uh, you know, about social, about uh, engagement, just... switch it out for the word manipulation and see how the taste fits you. Mm -hmm. But call it engagement, call it manipulation, uh, whatever you like. uh, It ends up creating this environment where everybody has to play that game in order Mm -hmm. to be heard. And of course, that means it changes the way that say uh, legitimate journalistic uh, um, uh, publications uh, have to play the game. You know, you have Mm to uh, lean into even, uh, you know, more ridiculous headlines, for instance. Yeah, clickbait. Clickbait headlines in order to get that precious engagement, and that can have an eroding effect on uh, on the institutions of journalism themselves. Oh, absolutely. I mean, well, that also goes with the just like
0: it is the most uh, the most toxic or most. Uh whatever voices gin up the most negative emotion tend to be promoted on these platforms because they drive engagement. The same could be true of topics. Mm -hmm. So like you might not say that, well, my voice is toxic, but like whatever topics get people the most like upset and worried and aggravated and angry and all that, those topics are going to be favored by algorithms that are trying to increase engagement. So they know, you know, I think a lot of times... um, publishers of online media know that there are certain topics that get people really upset and those will be the highest performing articles on the or videos on social media those days
2: yeah like think of chemicals as engagement like which chemicals are most engaging when you get them on your skin (laughs) you know i instantly think of the ones that are going to sting right Mm -hmm. Uh, and suddenly i can't think of anything but those stingy places on my skin Um, So, you know, again, one of the things that he comes back around to, too, is that, you know, what in in this context situation is that what you were saying is only valuable or relevant in so far as it serves the platform. And again, you were not the customer on this platform. You are the product. Mm -hmm. The customers are those uh, uh, those corporations or even state uh, players that have the money uh, to pay into the bummer system. Yeah. Uh, Now, I I was glad to see that he thinks Podcasts have not been ruined yet. <laughs> yes, yeah. So there, there's a whole section in, in this uh, this argument where he, he goes on to discuss podcasts and and uh, he yeah, makes an, an argument that podcasts are a rare area of our media that are not bummer yet. But he does dream up and describe an
0: absolute nightmare scenario for the future of podcasts that – I hope never comes to pass. And while I was reading it, I was literally breaking out in sweats.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, cause think about what we do on the show, you know, stuff to blow your mind is full of our personalities, and our context, uh, we have the time and we have the space to present topics and ideas, to present our takes and topics and ideas, and a chance to share our personalities with the listener in a continuous, episodic manner. And as a result, you, the listener, you kind of know us. You, you know, when, when we get something wrong, you have the context to understand what's going on generally, you know. And what we do on this show is not easily reduced to sound bites. that's true and this has been a problem before right yeah tr- you should trust us on this because f- every now and then not currently but it's it, with a fair amount of regularity someone will come to us and say we need some sound bites." yeah give us 15 second clips of your show to show what the show is really
0: about to show what the show that should be the clip <laughs> <laughs> but no it's like it's impossible to do when you try to pull out 15 seconds of our show nothing sounds right i mean
2: nothing really makes sense on its own that's that short yeah we're not we're not a zinger factory here we're not uh calculating celebrities or wannabe celebrities and we're not actively trying to play the soundbite game we're not trying to play the bummer game with this show Uh, but uh, to clarify all this and really explain what he's talking about uh lanier devises a way to quote ruin podcasting uh, and then he adds, "Nobody do this, okay? <laughs> oh,
4: no, so somebody's gonna
2: do it. <laughs> I mean, I yeah, I can I can oh, see it happening. Okay. So what does he say? Basically, he describes a sort of podcast aggregator app that serves up snippets from podcasts with ads, of course. And the resulting situation would be that podcasts would then be incentivized to produce the sort of content that lends itself to this format. So mm-hmm. fiery, you know, extreme, attention grabbing sound bites. The kind. Okay, so imagine clips
0: of podcasts that are that are prioritized the same way that like tweets or facebook posts or youtube videos are prioritized by the content uh, recommendation algorithms right so just basically like pulling out the most egregious and like a uh, negative emotion conjuring moments of things. Yeah. And the horrible out, outside of context.
2: Yeah. And the horrible thing is that I can well imagine the marketing on such an aggregator. You know, it would be something like, don't have time for all the podcasts in your life. Well, now you don't have to let telepod pick out the best parts of the shows and topics you love and serve it up to you in an easy to consume dose of wonder that fits into your busy schedule. And I and it sounds kind of convincing, you know. It's like, yeah, I'm busy. I don't have time for a whole bunch of hour long podcasts. There's so many of them. Why not let the algorithm slice out just the choice cuts from all my favorite shows and give them to me? Friends
0: out there in podcast land, if this happens, boycott. I do yeah. not do this. Do
2: not, unless you're already this type of show that is you know leaning. Because there are shows out there that do lend themselves well to. Uh, to this sort of thing, not necessarily by design, but just by sort of the, so either the type of topics they're already covering or the individuals involved, the personalities involved, you know, and, it, and it's not saying that, you know, that they're villains because of it, but I think there are a lot of great shows and, you know, hopefully ours is on that list where, yeah, you, you, you can't cut out these little segments and expect the uh, the host organism to survive or to be able to communicate what it's trying to communicate.
0: <laughs> it's going to be called Pod Butcher. (laughs)
2: And if Pod Butcher came to pass, you know, I can tell you that we would not be able to produce the sort of show we produce now that you presumably like if we had to satisfy such an algorithm. And what you like would have even less to do with it because you would have handed your likes and choices over to Bummer just as we, uh, you know, would have handed over Context itself. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is linear is not the only person or the first really to to recognize the death of context in social media. Uh, I was looking back at an article from 2012 in Forbes from Susan Tardonico, uh, and she wrote, quote, every relevant metric shows that we are interacting at breakneck speed with frequency through social media. But are we really communicating with 93 percent of our communication context stripped away? We are now attempting to forge relationships and make decisions based on phrases, abbreviations, snippets emoticons which may or may not be accurate representations of the truth mm-hmm. and we can we can actually go back even even farther on this notion as well um, on the show in the past i've discussed the work of futurists alvin and heidi toffler uh, they wrote a, a an important 1970 book titled future shock yeah which was also made into a an informative but also kind of um, <laughs> more entertaining than informative uh, Orson Welles narrated TV show ah. that's also this wonderful in its own right but the book uh, w- was pretty great and in it they discuss the apparent and possible disruptions of the human experience and human society due to rapid advances in technology and I would like everybody to consider this quote from uh, future shock 1970 again Quote, rational behavior, in particular, depends upon a ceaseless flow of data from the environment. It depends upon the power of the individual to predict, with at least fair success, the outcome of his own actions. To do this, he must be able to predict how the environment will respond to his acts. Sanity itself thus hinges on man's ability to predict his immediate personal future on the basis of information fed him by the environment. And me personally, I would extrapolate uh, this to the digital environment that we've grown in increasingly dependent upon. You know, it's like every day, like multiple times a day, over and over again, we're plugging into the digital environment and checking out of our physical environment as being a main determiner of our behavior.
0: Uh, but it's not an environment that's chiefly mechanically dominated by things like, uh, you know, everyday Newtonian physics that we can predict pretty well. Right. It's more like every, the, the main environments that we're participating in are like a giant, you know, super complex slot machine yeah. where you, you pull the lever and, you know, you can pull the lever in a few different kinds of ways and you don't know exactly what's going to come back out at you.
2: So this is this is the, 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 the digital context, the digital environment. Uh, and I want everyone to keep that in mind as I continue reading reading this quote from the tofflers here quote when the individual is plunged into a fast and irregularly changing situation or a novelty loaded context however his predictive accuracy plummets he can no longer make the reasonably correct assessments on which rational behavior is dependent to compensate for this to bring his accuracy up to the normal level again he must scoop up and process far more information than before and he must do this at extremely high rates of speed in short the more rapidly changing and the environment, the more information the individual needs to process in order to make effective rational decisions, and of course, there are limits to our speed yeah. So anyway, the the Tofflers, I think, really strike a chord with our current situation in this passage, at least from my standpoint. I mean, sanity itself hinges on our ability to predict our immediate personal future on the basis of information fed to us by the digital environment. And here we are attempting to communicate, act, and absorb knowledge in a social media environment that makes it impossible to control the information fed to us, absorb it all properly, and control the context of our own voices.
0: Yeah, yeah, all true. I think I mean it's it's kinda of scary. I mean to think about the fact that I, I'm quite sure that nobody there is nobody at Facebook who fully understands all the decisions made by the, you know, the content recommendation algorithm that creates the Facebook feed. Right? I mean, mean, maybe they could go, maybe they have some way of going through if they could look at an individual one and say, okay, here are probably some reasons why you were shown this, why you were shown that, but they can't like, they can't predict it all. You know, you can't generate one of these feeds just, uh, you know, with your own brain
2: yeah i mean and we're we're ultimately we're just continuing to understand what and to what extent uh you know the harm is mm-hmm. uh i i was looking around um, at uh, some various uh, uh you know posts and sort of industry thoughts about um about how social media has been linked to, to struggles with depression and anxiety. Yeah. Uh, and there are actually some serious discussions going on within the journalism field where journalists often feel the need to maintain a social media presence or are mandated to and are forced to deal with the resulting uh, act- I mean, actual trauma and PTSD. Oh, man. If you're a journalist, especially working
0: in some kinds of fields, you mm-hmm. are going to be inundated Day in and day out with, with hateful messaging from people who don't like whatever you're you're saying or doing in your career, uh, people telling you to go kill yourself, people telling you that you're a fraud,
2: and you know, and heaven yeah, and heaven forbid your um, your gender, your gender identity, your uh, your your race or um, or what have you, uh, you know, happens to to you know put you in the, the, the lines of sights of you know particular uh, 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 troll groups on yeah. social media.
0: Totally, and and I know that there is a kind of common reaction, I think especially from people who don't deal with this problem themselves, mm-hmm. to say like, you know, it's just people, it's just trolling, just get over it, you know, it's just trolling. Like you are probably just failing to imagine what it is like to, to actually face this kind of like hate and abuse all the time. You know we're, we're highly social creatures. I mean, even if you don't actually fear violence against yourself, which mm-hmm. you might have good reason to, uh,
2: depending on you know who you are and who these people. Are and what they say, but right I mean, if anything should be clear is that the the digital world and the physical world are are not separated by an impassable uh, chasm, you know right I mean, I mean we online we, is real life it is real life, and we see violence stemming from digital activities, yeah, but even if you're not in that
0: category, dealing with an onslaught of just hate and abuse all the time is it it, it, it is life ruining.
2: Yeah. And, and generally, we're not trained to deal with it. So a lot of the discussions going on in journalism are, are you know, should we be training people to, to cope with the flood of negative commentary and effectively sort out what should be ignored, what requires attention and what constitutes an actual threat that should be you know, reported to uh, authorities? Yeah.
0: And to re- reiterate, of course, it's not just journalists that deal with this kind right. of issue. But like journalism is one field where a lot of times people have to be on these platforms, whether they want to be or not. And also by the nature of their work just natu- uh, just attract a lot of negative attention
2: right if if one if someone wants to learn more about this uh, I I should point out that uh, Kyle Bessie wrote a great post just last month at uh, journalism.co.uk titled how social media impacts mental health in journalists and of course in thinking about all of this it, you know it comes back to the fact that like this is the reality we've built for ourselves mm-hmm. you know and, i mean it's through this complex interface of, you know, of corporate interests and algorithms and and so forth. But still, like, this is the world we've made for ourselves. We've we've created, uh, you know, through our use of technology, these new uh, pitfalls and these new perils uh, to social engagement.
0: All right, we need to take another break. But after this, we will be back with more of our discussion. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride.
4: Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at hypergig for details.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all.
3: perfect home sweet home
2: all right we're back
0: so one of uh jaron lanier's arguments from this book uh 10 arguments to what is it how exactly does it go for deleting your social media accounts right now yeah there it is um one of them is that quote social media
2: hates your soul (laughs) Now, Robert, what are we to make of this? So th- this is this is argument 10. So mm-hmm. this is the like the, the final all encompassing argument. So in a sense, it's almost a little bit unfair for me to skip to it because it it hinges upon all the arguments that he's made. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's not going to spoil the book. No, it, it's not. But to give you a taste of it, I'm just going to read the, the second paragraph from the first page of this argument. Quote, to review. Your understanding of others has been disrupted because you don't know what they've experienced in their feeds. While the reverse is also true, the empathy others might offer you is challenged because you can't know the context in which you'll be understood. You're probably becoming more of an a- But you're also probably sadder, another pair of bummer disruptions that are mirror images. Your ability to know the world, to know truth, has been degraded, while the world's ability to know you has been corrupted. Politics has become unreal and terrifying, while economics has become unreal and unsustainable, two sides of the same coin.
0: That's pretty bleak, and it's hard to imagine just from that paragraph that he is
2: ultimately presenting an optimistic uh, message, though so he is. He is, yeah. Uh, but, you know, he's, he's saying, though, that, look, Bummer's behavioral modification is taking place not only at an individual scale, but at a societal scale. In this, its reach is more like a religion and, it's, and it concerns not only the way you live your life online, but what it means to be a person at all. Yeah, Which again, may sound a bit extreme and a bit out there, but uh, I think he really makes a strong case for this. Uh, first of all, Coming back to free will, which we talked about earlier, free will is central to most religions. You're, you're hard pressed to find a spiritual model in which humans are mere automatons. But under Bummer, he argues, free will isn't destroyed, but it is assaulted. It's degraded. You have less of it. And certain parties wind up with more alongside you know their wealth and power that they've already accumulated or are accumulating as they uh, take more and more of your free will.
0: You know, and this actually, I think, does uh, does go along with I don't know. So, we've talked before about the coherence of the idea of free will on this mm-hmm. show. And I'm sure we're going to get a lot of kind of like a materialist pushback yeah. on the idea of free will saying, hey, wait a minute, free will is an incoherent concept. I think you could make that argument based on some definitions of free will. But in this sense, the sense that he uses it, I, I think free will is an important thing to consider and is a real concept. Basically, it, free will means Um, The feeling that you have control over your own behavior by understanding the influences on yourself and thinking about them consciously. Right. And, you know, you can never understand all of the influences on yourself, but there are definitely ways in which you can be in a system where you, you feel like you understand most of the inputs that are coming in on you and you can process them consciously in your decision-making versus a system like uh, like a kind of uh, behavioral modification system where you, in fact, don't know you're being influenced. You don't know who's influencing you, and this is all opaque. You're just suddenly producing behaviors that feel alien, and you don't know why you're doing them.
2: Yes. Now, another religion-based uh, argument he makes uh, in this chapter is that bummer ultimately wants you to believe it is the internet and it is the main part of your devices uh but uh, but it but it ultimately is separate. He's you know he says you can have the internet without social media, and he makes a you know strong argument for that. You know
0: that that's ultimately I think his point is that you know you you could have a great internet just by sort of switching everything from the behavior modification pay for model to uh, like a subscription model where yeah. you know like you could have something like Facebook, but instead of modifying your behavior uh, to pay for it, you just you just pay to get access.
2: Right. And, uh, and, uh, Lanier argues that, you know, in the same way that Protestants rejected, uh, papal indulgences, you know, you can, uh, you you can reject the social media, but keep the internet. You can reject Mm -hmm. the version of your faith that is, uh, that is, uh, you know, tiresome or offensive or dangerous and keep the parts that work for you. I mean, I, I've said that before regarding just, uh, religion in general, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever religion you adhere to, uh. I can almost guarantee you there is some version of it uh, that is uh, that is ultimately more accepting and uh, you know and, and more liberal in its outlook. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know whether it's in your immediate area or you have to you know go out to find it is another issue. Uh, he also makes the argument that Bummer activates PAC, uh, the pack setting of mm-hmm. our mind. Uh, and in doing so, it, quote, resurrects old conflicts that had been associated with religion in order to engage people as intensely as possible. So basically, social media riles us up mm-hmm. and causes the kind of like pack mentality and tribalism that normally you would have to look to a religion to do.
0: Yeah. Well, he, he this is part of an earlier argument in the book, but basically it's part of an argument he makes about how, uh, as, social media is making us meaner and, and worse by, by triggering t- types of thought patterns that are more associated with obsession with hierarchies mm-hmm. and, and in-group out-group thinking and that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, and uh, domination mentality. Yeah, dominator culture. And then he he also points out that Bummer ultimately asks you to have faith. Not in, in God or gods or a goddess, but in the almighty algorithms that decide what slice of news, political commentary, fake news, parody, conspiracy theory, or just outright hate you see in your feed. And that it's you know entirely anti-enlightenment anti-enlight, in that regard, in that it makes learning subservient to human power hierarchies. Well, yeah. I mean,
0: it, by allowing these algorithms to control what you see all day— mm-hmm. You are in practice, whether you know you, you think about this or not. In practice, you're giving your consent to somebody to shape who you become as a person, right. and uh, and that that's a lot of power. That's a lot of faith to put in some business.
2: He goes on from here to discuss another destructive force in human discourse, memes. Oh. Um, so th- this, is that, this is one of these areas where when I talk about memes, I feel like I often just come off like an old person, an old grumpy person who doesn't understand how the kids talk, you know? Complaining about memes. But yeah. no,
0: I I am with you there. Even when I see a meme that's funny and I see them all the time, you know, I'm not I'm not above memes. It's like, yeah, some are really funny and I like them. But there's a part of me that always sort of rebels, and I think it has to do with what we were talking about about context earlier. Mm -hmm. I I worry about meme culture degrading the context of, of original images and text in a way that that just constantly batters down our defenses and batters down our desire to understand things in in, in their original meaning.
2: Yeah, he, he writes that memes may at first, you know, when we first engage with them, they might seem to amplify what we're feeling or trying to say. Yeah. and you know, for instance, somebody posts a bit of uh, its news or a thought, and you back it up with like, what do you see in so many Facebook responses, or I guess on other social media platforms as well, you see like gifs and memes mm-hmm. that seem to be sort of an amen, brother kind of a, mm-hmm. an argument or, or or some other interaction with the content but 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 ultimately, like this this feeling of amplification is an illusion. You're only reinforcing the notion that virality is truth. Whatever is the most viral is rewarded, and that's a key part of Bummer's design. Uh But just because it's viral does not mean it is the truth, right? And uh, and which seems like an 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 overstatement of the obvious when I say it like that. But but again, don't think about you know think about the way we interact with it and the way we use memes.
0: Mm -hmm. I I mean. If you go to a any fact checking website, just pick your favorite. I mean, and pull it a fact or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you like scroll down. and you scroll down to see uh, you know like uh, truth ratings by source Mm -hmm. what's always the number one source of uh, total fabrications you might think of immediately your least favorite politician but no it's not a person it's viral image Right? viral image is always the number one source of false facts that are spreading around the internet why is that Uh, well because viral image is an extremely powerful method for spreading falsehoods It it spreads way easier than somebody going on TV and saying them.
2: The well, goes on from here to you know also point out that uh, many of the, these bummer uh, uh, companies and uh, the, and some of the key individuals associated with them you know they're also put, they also put a lot of emphasis on grander ideas of organizing all information of providing communities with purpose of creating AI and ultimately he says that you know this is a this is a danger to uh, to personhood you know that there's a spiritual danger uh, to us in our sense of personhood when we start uh you know putting too much emphasis on these these non-human models of um of thinking in humanity mm-hmm. uh you know which again this is getting into kind of heady headier territory than most of the book uh but I, I think it's it's an interesting case you know what is how how are these powerful corporations thinking about what it is to be human and then how is that changing the definition? Uh, At least, like the sort of the spiritual definition and the self-defining principle of personhood. So again, like this this argument in the book, I I, it does have. I think there is a a possibility that you hear this or even you read it and you start, you know, asking yourself, "Well, is that that really the case? Are we really thinking about social media like it's a religion? Is it still is it is it actually uh, serving a purpose that is akin to religion?" And I, I I think I think he makes a strong case. I think that. I think it's one of those things where you kind of like you wake up one day and you realize, oh, I I have joined the church of social media mm-hmm. and I've actually I've been attending services for years uh. and I didn't quite realize it, you know? Uh I you know, you tend to think of, of a religion as, you know, as this, as a as a church or a temple, as these images of gods, mm-hmm. and you don't think of of the the roles that they they play in a culture. And How even as, uh, you know, for the most part in in, in many cultures, there is a movement away from these organized religions, you know, there's this there's this possibility that we are we are rebuilding something that operates in in much the same way. Or maybe in just some of the same worst ways. Yeah, without (laughs) without without some of the same without providing some of the best because I've you know, as I've discussed in the show before, you know, I think there I think religion and spirituality, uh, that they both have tremendous benefits, uh, to individuals and as certainly to, uh, uh, to societies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you can get that sense of community with a, a religious organization. You know, they can do, uh, a great deal of harm, uh, if they are, um, you know, if, if they have toxic beliefs, uh, wound up into their, their fabric
0: mm-hmm. or but, they, they, pr- they
2: promote, uh, toxic personality dynamics sometimes. Yes, yes certainly. But, uh, but but yeah, if we we would what we don't want to do is certainly to to put all of the all of that aside and then rebuild. Yeah, like, like you say, a, a new digital religion that is based on most of the worst qualities of what came before.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I find uh, most of this book a, a pretty compelling message. But I, I do want to emphasize again that it's like um, it emphasizes a lot of what's negative about the current model of social media. But even with these like bummer companies he doesn't demonize he's not saying and we're not saying that like all the people who work at these companies are bad people we're not even saying that like necessarily all the the things done by these companies or all their products are bad i mean like you know facebook and google and all these companies have uh, they they provide real technologies and real products that do you know great things for people's lives they make all kinds of things easier they provide enormous wealth and convenience and stuff like that so it's not that like everything these companies do is uh, bad i mean that that's not true by any stretch of the imagination. It's just that there are certain elements about the business model of especially the social media platforms, and specifically it's the element that it's behavior modification for rent. That really do need to be reformed, and that's where his recommendation comes in. He says, if you want to give these companies financial incentive to reform, delete your accounts.
2: Right? Yeah. The the the, the bummer illness is is there in social media. Yeah. And the only way to get rid of it, to rid the host of that that uh, infection, is to step away from it. To have to create this financial incentive uh, for those uh, for these corporations to change, and and ultimately, yeah, he's he has this positive uh, view. This optimistic view that it can change—that if we were to do this, if we were all to do this, not all at once, but perhaps this gradual awakening uh, to the reality—you know—we could reach the point where social media can exist in a form that is not, not demeaning of our personhood, that is not modifying our behavior to the benefit of uh, you know, uh, you know, unknown corporations or by state or non-state players.
0: Yes. There, so there are a ton of other arguments he gets into in the book that we did not have time to address today. Of course, we're, you know, we're not going to address everything in the book. If we can get Jaron Lanier to come on the show sometime, I'd be interested in talking about some of the other ones. Uh, yeah. Especially. Uh, but also, I'm interested in hearing from listeners who, who disagree maybe, who, uh, or you know, agree or disagree. Because I, I, one thing I recognize is that I think I have an emotional predisposition to bias in favor of these arguments. Mm-hmm. Uh, Simply because I, I feel like in my life, I have witnessed a lot of negativity growing out of social media. I personally, emotionally don't like platforms like Facebook and Twitter. And tr- and so, you know, I, I, I've i got a predisposition that makes this seem, this all seem good to me. So I'd be interested in hearing, you know, the arguments presented to the contrary uh, that, that would go against my biases that say, no, maybe it's not as bad as he's uh, representing.
2: Right. And likewise, if anyone out there has quit social media. If you have deleted your social media accounts, uh, I'd be interested to hear your take on how that went. You know, mm-hmm. why, you know, why did you do it? Uh, did, did you accomplish what you hoped to accomplish by stepping away? Uh, you know, all this is a fair game for discussion. So again, the title of the book is 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now by Jaron Lanier. That's L-A-N-I-E-R. It's uh, As of this recording, it's currently available in hardback, and it's coming out in paperback very soon. Yeah, if it's not out by the time this episode publishes, it will be coming out soon. Yeah, so uh, again, highly recommend this read and would love to hear from listeners who read it as well. In the meantime, if you want to follow what we do, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. And if you want to support the show, rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so and make sure you have subscribed.
0: Huge thanks to our excellent audio producer, Maya Cole. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on today's episode, uh, to suggest a topic for the future, to follow up on any of the prompts we just issued, you can email us at contact at StuffToBlowYourMind.com.
3: perfect home sweet
1: home okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road with available h-track all-wheel drive and three-row seating my whole family can head deep into the wild conquer the weekend in the all-new hyundai santa fe